God's Great Kindness. The book of Ruth is a beautiful short story in the Bible. If you've read it already, then great, read it again. If you haven't read it yet, then please do. Um, And it tells this even bigger story in the Bible of God's greatest kindness, which we've been singing about this morning. Love so amazing, so divine, demands our soul, our life for all, which is the love of God to us in Jesus. So here's what I'm going to talk about today, that God's great kindness is displayed to us often in the midst of extreme adversity and tragedy. And that's what happens in the book of Ruth. So we're going to jump straight in to see what that tragedy was, and then we're going to unpack how God showed his kindness in that situation. So let's look at chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with two sons, her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Um, I wonder if you've had the experience of trauma or tragedy in your life. Some of us will. Some of us will face extreme tragedy and trauma like Naomi did. Some of us will face it less, but all of us will face adversity and pain in our lives at some point. And we can learn from Naomi. She faced the death of a spouse. That's surely one of the greatest hardships. She faced the death of a child, which is pretty horrific. She faced the death of all her children, which is worse again. And here's the thing about Naomi. She was financially dependent on her sons and on her husband. So not only with her grieving, she was also experiencing financial poverty and ruin at the very same time. It can be hard for us to imagine Naomi's uh, situation in our culture where you know, we, we have a welfare state, don't we? It may not be everything we want it to be, but uh, in times of trouble, there's this idea in our society that people should help and that the state should help and society should help. Not so much in that culture. I remember um, six years ago, I was visiting a village in northern India and I was visiting a church leader there. And he introduced me to uh, a lady in his church who'd become a Christian a couple of years earlier. And I said, oh, well, tell, tell me the story. How did she become a Christian? And, and he said, well, it's a pretty horrific story, he said, because she was married and her husband died. He says, and, and actually the property law in that particular village was that the house then belonged to the dead man's brother rather than to his wife. And so the brother took ownership of the property and he just turfed the wife out. And he said, well, you need to find somewhere else to live. And she had nowhere to go. So she went to this church, and she said, well, I've got nowhere to go. And they gave her a bed, and they gave her food because she had nothing. And they were kind to her. And not only that, she had no way of making any money. So they they gave her some uh, lessons in how to do sewing, and they let her join their sewing kind of collective that was making clothes to earn a little bit of money so she could survive and get by. Now... For us, when we hear a story like that, it's filled with unjust injustice, and it's filled with a sense of how could that happen? 
and also a sense of, wow, isn't that kindness amazing in that situation that was shown? Well, Naomi's story is probably not so dissimilar to that story. The three fundamentals of needs for human beings are food, water, and shelter. And Naomi finds herself where these fundamentals are in jeopardy. And she has these two daughters-in-law, not related to her, but with the same predicament. And then Naomi hears that there's food back in Israel, back in Bethlehem, where she was from. She's living in this place called Moab, far from home. So she decides to go home, her and these two daughters-in-law. And a short way into the journey, Naomi tells them to go back to their homes in Moab. Please put up the next slide, John. Thank you. So this is verse 12. Return home, my daughters, she says to them. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, what would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. And then we go a few verses down to verse 19. So the two women, Naomi and, and Ruth, went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant one. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, pleasant? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Naomi, this leader of this bitter, this leader of a bittersweet life. And she says it like it is. She says, don't call me pleasant anymore because life doesn't feel that way. She says, call me bitter. Got three points. Firstly, bitterness happens in our lives. Whether we like it or not, bitterness comes. And for Naomi, it was the bitterness of grief, the bitterness of poverty, the bitterness of injustice. We might add other things into that. We might add in our kind of setting or, or world that we live in, a very common one would be the, the bitterness of broken relationships. I was reading something the other day, because sometimes we're, we're not so good at self-diagnosing these things, and, and somebody was suggesting, well, if this describes you, then perhaps you have bitterness in relationships. Here are some uh, things. I don't know if they're relevant for anybody here, but it says you have imaginary conversations with people in your head. You replay an experience again and again in your head. You feel the need to tell somebody what that person did. You're easily offended by that person. You have strong negative reactions to things that that person says or does. You remember details said often from years ago. You keep a list of offenses. Bitterness happens to all of us. But the, the, the wonderful thing about the book of Ruth as an Old Testament narrative is this. It, it doesn't obscure it. It doesn't run away from it. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't say that kind of thing never happens to good people. It describes her pain and her emotional response. She's angry. She's upset. She's grieving her loss. She's blaming God. She's conflicted. Narrative books of the Bible help us be real. You know, there's no quick fix to the feelings that she has. If you're ever trying to help somebody who's going through a season of bitterness in their life, how many of you know that, you know, that the five quick steps to resolving bitterness don't really work? <laughs> 
Nor does or the Christian equivalent, which is to quote Ephesians 4.31, get rid of bitterness in your life. Thanks a lot. <laughs> that verse has value. We'll come on to that later on. But, um, but sometimes it's helpful to say to people who are going through bitterness, just tell us your story. Tell us what happened for you. But what you see in the story of Naomi and Ruth is this, that, that, that Ruth's bitterness this, this extreme loss that she's been going through, it produces some very, very strange responses in her when Ruth tries to help. Did you notice that? So, first of all, both of these daughters-in-law, they try to help. Naomi tells them to go away. <clears throat> They're just trying to step in, and one of them gets pushed away. Orpah, she says, well, okay, if you, if you don't need my help, then I, I will go. Bitterness pushes people away. Bitterness produces independence. Naomi, it sounds like a a rousing speech, but she basically says, you two girls, you go and live your lives and I'll live mine. (coughs) Independence is the very opposite of what we need. Bitterness skews true perspective. You know, she she describes his life. She said, you know, I, I I left Bethlehem full to go to Moab. She says, and I've returned empty. She can only see the blessings that she's lost. She can't see the blessings that have already started pouring back into her life. If you were to go a couple of verses earlier than the ones we read, you read this amazing speech from Ruth, who when Naomi tells her to go away, she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severe, if even death separates you and me. That's a remarkable commitment that Ruth has shown this lady in need. Anybody know how Ruth... How Naomi responded to, I mean, this verse, it sometimes gets used in wedding vows because it's so beautiful. People say, isn't that amazing? You'll be my, you know, your people will be my people, I'll be yours. Well, do you know how Naomi responds? She says, well, if I can't persuade you to go, let's stop talking. <laughs> See, you know, when we're going through seasons of bitterness, sometimes our actions don't make sense and our words don't make sense. Ruth is ignored. Actually, the greatest blessing that has come into Naomi's life is Ruth. She's standing next to her as people meet her in Bethlehem at the gate. And she says, I've got nothing and I've got nobody. I'm empty. And people say, well, who's this person? (laughs) Clearly irrelevant. How rude. Bitterness can make you unaware of others' needs. Here we have Ruth, who's also mourning her husband. But Naomi seems to be unaware in the bitter state she's in. Bitter people can find kindness hard to deal with. Do you know, just a word of advice for us as we help one another through these seasons in our lives. It can be deeply confusing if you're helping somebody process loss and they're feeling very bitter about it. Because sometimes you think, well, do you want me here or not? (laughs) I'm trying to help, but it looks like you don't want me to help. Ruth models something really remarkable for us. Firstly, She's just really kind. And when things are difficult in our life, sometimes we don't need people to problem solve for us. We just need people to be kind. 
Here's the second thing that is really, really remarkable. Ruth inserts herself into Naomi's bitter narrative. Her sister-in-law couldn't do that. It takes courage and huge amounts of grace to be a friend when people push you away or don't value what you're doing. By contrast, Ruth says to Naomi, the more you tell me to go away, the more I will stay with you. When you devalue me, I won't take it personally. When you're rude, I'll think the best of your confused state of mind and ignore it. And I will keep walking with you until we get where we need to go. Let's get back to the messiness of feeling bitter. This is a happy talk, isn't it, today? <laughs> we'll get some good stuff in a moment. Don't worry, okay? But let's get back to the messiness of feeling, better, of feeling bitter. Because I think Naomi does some things really, really excellently. And perhaps you missed it as we were reading the verses. Here's the first thing. She's actually self-aware enough to know that she's being quite bitter about things. That's a great place to be. Bitter circumstances never stop God's plan for you or him using you or displaying, you displaying courage and faith in the midst of a bitter season of life. Don't let the enemy disqualify you. Don't let him say, well, you're, you're good for nothing until things get back on track in your life. Not true at all. Often the greatest moments of faith and courage in your life will happen when you're going through a season of real testing, trial, and dare I say, bitterness. So let's see a couple of things. So here's the second point. Bitterness has an outlet. Bitterness has an outlet. And here's the thing she does well. Firstly, Naomi processes out loud with God in the conversation. She processes out loud with God in the conversation. So she says, don't call me Naomi. Pleasant. She told them, call me Mara, bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, first reading, you say, well, she just seems to be blaming God here. She just seems to be throwing the dolly out the pram and saying, it's all God's fault. But I want you to see some really, really remarkable things in there. At the same time, she's actually lifting up the name of God. She's calling him almighty. Twice. The, the, the Hebrew word is El Shaddai. Uh, that's the, the, the word, that's the name that God revealed himself to Abraham with. And it means uh, the almighty. Uh, it could mean God of the mountain. It's the sense of his vastness. And in the context with Abraham, where, where Abraham is struggling, him and Sarah are struggling to have children that are promised to them. Uh, God says to Abraham, he says, I am almighty. I mean, I'm enough. I'm enough. When the promise seems to be in jeopardy, I am enough. And this is what Naomi calls God out loud as she's discussing all the pain and the problems and the conflict and, and how that doesn't seem to resolve itself. God's almighty, I seem to be in suffering. She says, well, all I know is he's almighty. The other name that she uses of God in these verses, uh, it, it might be just the word capitalized Lord in your, in your Bible translation. And it's the covenant name of God. It's Yahweh. It means it's the, it's the God of who's revealed himself through the pages of Scripture, through the Old Testament story, through the people of Israel. When Naomi called God Yahweh, Lord, what she was doing, that she was recalling who he was and who he was to the people of God. 
You know, in the Passover meal, they, they celebrated the Passover meal to celebrate that God had delivered the people of Israel from Egypt, out of slavery, across the Red Sea, through the years of the wilderness, and into the promised land. They, they ate this Passover meal. And, you know, one of the things they did was that they would take some bitter herbs and they would eat them. And it wasn't particularly pleasant. But when they did that, they were reminding themselves as the people of God of the bitterness of slavery that the people of God endured for hundreds of years. And when they ate these bitter herbs, they were reminding, actually, bitterness is sometimes part of the narrative of God's people. But they were also reminding themselves of this because the Passover story tells them that's not the end of the story. It tells them that that God is going to deliver them from the bitterness and take them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness and into the promised land where he's called them to go. When they crossed the Red Sea, it took them all of three days before they started moaning because they'd run out of water. And they thought, we're all going to die. And they come across this little muddy pool. And they start to drink the water, and it's, it's bitter. And they call it Mara. They, they say it's, it's a bitter pool. Um, and they couldn't drink its water because it was bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it in the water, and the water became fit to drink. Even at that early moment, God did something for the people of Israel to remind themselves that bitterness wasn't the end of their story again. It wasn't going back to how it was. It was looking forwards. And it was looking forwards to the time when he would lead them into the promised land. But, you know, it was also prophetic, that moment when Moses threw a piece of wood into the water of something that would happen 1,400 years later, when God would say, look to another piece of wood, the cross, where the Son of God would die, and he would be the end of sin and evil and bitterness in our lives. After they'd left that place of bitter pools, they they actually just turned the corner and they came to a place with 12 springs and 70 palm trees. It's almost like God saying, I'm going to be more than enough for you. If you're going through a season of pain, please know this, that this is not the end of your story because the cross ensures it will never be the end of your story. Some of us uh, were, were on, on Friday were attending a uh, funeral and Thanksgiving service for Ev, who was a dear member of King's for 20 years. And it was a beautiful service, remembering her friendship and her faith. And, and she did this beautiful thing. She, she wrote us a, a letter. And this is after a couple of years of just enduring, enduring bitter illness. She was never bitter in her, in her soul. She was always very joyful. But... Um, She wrote a letter to be read at her funeral. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's just a beautiful bit at the end where she describes having faced hardship and suffering. She says, I know I have a great future ahead with my precious friend Jesus. Here are some lovely words to leave with you. For me to live is Christ Mm. and to die is gain. Mm. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. So she processes out loud. The second thing she, she does is this. She, she laments. Um, so the prayer of lament can look very messy. And she, she, says, um, she says that the Lord has done this to me. 
And when we look at Scripture, suffering is a very complex issue, but we conclude, well, God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of harm. He does allow things to happen in our lives, but he always does it with, for, for the good of those who love him. And Naomi isn't fully understanding that theological truth at this moment in time. And it's okay. It's okay for our prayers to be messy. In fact, the Psalms are messy. You read this one. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Does God forget people? In the nature of being God is you don't forget things, right? <laughs> Yet this psalmist says, well, it feels that way to me, God, so I'm going to say it. You know, it's okay to pray, to pray to God what you're feeling and to pour out your heart. And Naomi did. Uh, here's Hannah, another lady in the Bible, in 1 Samuel chapter 1. She was struggling to conceive. And it, it had become a, a very, very deep and difficult point in her life. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. In fact, Eli, who was kind of the pastor there, really, he, he drew alongside and he, he concluded that she must be drunk because her prayers were so nonsensical. He was a great pastor. I, he makes me feel better about myself sometimes. I don't know. But, but, but it, 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 such were her prayers. It, it didn't seem to make sense to anybody other than her. There's a, a proverb that says, the heart knows its own bitterness and its joy none can share. Do you know, the, the feelings of bitterness are so deep and so personal that even when we express them, sometimes it's so, so messy. Job, who we know suffered greatly, he cried out in his suffering. His friends wanted to fix the problem and rationalize his experience, but he simply said things like this. He said, I loathe my very life, therefore I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in bitterness of my soul. You know, it's okay not to be okay before a God who loves you. Come as you are. So bitterness happens. Bitterness has an outlet. But here's the third thing that we must talk about today, that bitterness has a remedy. Bitterness has a remedy, and it's the grace of God. And we'd sometimes love the remedy to be a quick fix. But we note in this case that it wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't a reversal of fortunes. It wasn't even the thing that Naomi was looking for or thinking would happen. You see, here's the thing about life. You can't really go backwards. Sometimes, uh, sometimes God can do that. Sometimes God can do a miracle. He will do a miracle. He can always do a miracle, but some, sometimes he, he, he does a miracle. Naomi's husband and sons are not brought back to life, although God could do that. His methodology to answer prayer here for Naomi, as is often the case, is to lead her forwards to grace through multiple acts of grace. And first of all, she hears some news that she hadn't heard, that there was, God was providing food back in Bethlehem. Suddenly she heard something. If you're here today and you're hearing God speaking to you, that's an act of his grace towards you, leading you to grace. His grace gives us people alongside us to journey with us and help us to get to where we're meant to go. Let's be grateful for Christian friendship but his grace leads us to a place. It leads us to Bethlehem. 
which means house of bread. It's the place of his provision. They're returning. Bethlehem is where she left from many years ago. And it was the place that she was returning to. Naomi had left that place out of distrust for God and his word decades earlier. She and her husband decided that God wouldn't provide for them where they were, so they left. And she'd been away a long time. In this act of returning, Naomi is coming back to God in the hope that she might be given a little bit of bread to eat. She's hungry, she's tired, she's lost everything. And so she makes the journey back in the hope that somebody may look out for her. And actually, she finds something even more remarkable happens, that people welcome her home. And actually, the grace she will receive will not just be a little bit of bread, but she will become part of the messianic line that would lead to Jesus, the king of grace, being born to humanity. I don't know if that story of of somebody coming back, feeling empty-handed and feeling like they've lost everything and making a return to a place they'd left, I don't know if that reminds you of any other story in the Bible. It probably does, if you've been a Christian. Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son, he leaves his father's household, he goes, he squanders everything, and he comes back empty-handed and he thinks, well, maybe dad will give me a job and maybe I can get some food. God never has his children back on those terms. He says, no, I'm not just going to give you a job and a bit of food. He says, I'm going to throw a party. I'm going to pour my grace all over you. And I'm going to welcome you back into the family of God. Naomi is welcomed back into the family of God. Ruth is welcomed into the family of God, even though she is an outsider as well. It's the place of grace. It's the place where Jesus would be born many years later, the king of grace. Jesus who would open the storehouses of grace at the cross when he would die for the sins of the world. The valley of bitterness becomes the mountain of grace. We've sung lots of hymns about the cross today. Here's here's another one. It says this, On the mount of crucifixion, floodgates open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, flowed incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Here's the wonderful thing. If you're feeling in a season of bitterness today, it's not that God has forgotten you. It's not that God doesn't love you. It's that actually in the bitter seasons of life, He will use these seasons to to pour out his love and the storehouses of heaven that he might know the fullness of everything he has for you. Let's apply grace very practically in this last couple of moments. If you were to look in the New Testament and to to look up the word bitter, it would probably come up with three verses, and, and these are them. And I've summarized them for us. Here's the first one, James 3, verse 14. He says, if you harbor bitter, bitterness and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it and don't deny the truth. Here's the invitation to us today. If we're feeling in a season of bitterness, let's be honest about it. Let's be honest. Let's not boast about it. 
Let's not, let's not make bitterness our thing. <laughs> let's not be Victor Meldrew here. None of you are old enough for that, are you? <laughs> bitterness is not our thing. It, it's a season we go through. Let's not pretend it's not happening. Let's say, well, this is how it is. Secondly, Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that nobody falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. It's a slightly obscure verse because actually it's referencing something in Deuteronomy 29 where, uh, where God is speaking to the people of Israel. And he says this bitterness, this bitter poison that the people of God face is when they make idols for themselves that they worship. You know, when we go through scenes of bitterness, we sometimes look for the quick fix. We've got a relationship that's gone wrong, therefore we, we, we jump into another one to try and fix it. God says, don't, don't make idols. When we're bitter, we look to God, who is the source of all that we need to help us in our time of need. Thirdly, Ephesians 4.31. Don't stop walking forward. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. That the word get rid, if you to look at in other, other translations or in other contexts in the New Testament, it has this sense of, Getting rid of, disposing, get, get, doing away with, discarding, but also letting it be taken off you. See, we, we can't do this by ourselves. We need, we need uh, Ephesians 4 is, is after many, many chapters of Paul talking about the grace of God to us in Christ. And as we experience God's great love to us, so he begins to displace bitterness in our lives if we let him. If we begin to say to him, Lord, I just want to let these things go. These things I'm wrestling with and feeling. Please fill me with your grace. And he begins to do a journey of recovery in us to take us forwards into the season he has for us. Let's just spend a few moments before God. Let's look to this piece of wood that is the cure for our bitterness. Let's bring it to him now. Let's bring our sorrow. Let's bring our disappointments. Let's bring our broken dreams. Let's bring the things we're angry about. Let's bring our grief to him. Just feel for. Let me just pray for you just now, and then I'll. Lord, Holy Spirit, you are the comforter. You know every pain that we're holding right now, and you know that some of that feels very crushing. So, Lord, would you come and strengthen us and help us? Be an ever present strength in times of trouble. I feel for perhaps there's one or maybe more people here today that in this, you've had a season of just protracted difficulty, but you know in the midst of that, you've been walking away from God. And I just believe 
God's calling you to return today. And if this is you, I don't want to make a big deal of this, but just, just lift your hands because I'd love to pray for you. Bible calls this repentance. It's to turn 180 degrees and to walk back towards God when you've walked away from him. And you also know that God isn't punishing you. He's for you. So Lord, I just pray for anybody who may be in that category today. I just pray, let them experience your grace as they walk towards you. Let them experience the grace of hearing your voice, of people coming alongside, and of them arriving in this place, the cross of Jesus, where grace is poured out for them.